We've been looking at God's story in the times of Nehemiah. But today we're going to look at that story cast within the redemptive story of God, the big picture, from Genesis up until that time, because they come to see their story in that context. And it's in that context that their story comes to make sense for them, and they get where they are. And finally, we're going to come to, that, to find that uh, this story, this large story of God, is also our story. It's your story. And uh, we're going to be challenged to see where we are in that story, not only personally, but corporately as a body. And so we've been studying about uh, God and his people, their time of return to Jerusalem. And I want to review just real quick, just to bring us up to where we're at. And so they they had returned to Jerusalem after the second exile to Babylon through Nehemiah. And if you remember... Nehemiah was praying and he put himself out at great risk to follow God and to uh, align himself with God's plan and purposes. And he petitioned for King Artaxerxes to overturn a a prior made uh, command that the building in Jerusalem cease and uh, the hand of the Lord was upon him and King Artaxerxes granted that he could go and rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And so prayerfully... Nehemiah goes, to ba- goes back to Jerusalem and he petitions to his fellow Israelites to rebuild the wall with him. And the reason he asked him to do this is because God has made a way. And if you recall, the Israelites entrust themselves to Nehemiah. They trust his testimony that God is making a way and they too align themselves with the purposes of God. They determine to no longer be a disappointment as the people of God but to be his people who he has purposed and promised great things for. And so we come to find that when they align themselves with God's purpose, they come to know God through experience, his mighty works, his awesome power. We also come to find that much more than building a wall, God was building a people. And so as they engaged in this mission and experienced God and all of his great mighty works, they became unified. And again, the work of revival began in their hearts. And they started to become those who he had created them to be. No longer a disappointment. And if you remember, against much resistance, both externally and internally, God's hand was faithful. And they rebuilt that wall in 52 days. An unbelievable feat. It was such a significant feat that the enemy shrunk because they knew that the hand of their God was with them. This revival was evident last week, if you remember, when God's people, 42,000 strong, assembled before the great work that God had done in that wall. And they came and lifted Ezra and the Scriptures up and they submitted to those teachings and heard the law Spoken, and they also were taught for seven hours straight. Remember, they lifted their hands to the Lord, acknowledging their need, and and then bowed low in humble adoration and in worship to their God. And if you remember, it moved them to weep because they came to see their sin. But then Ezra incited them, do not weep, but rejoice, because it was a time of festival when they were supposed to rejoice. And this was a time of covenant renewal, another context for rejoicing. 
If you remember, these events were associated with a memorial of God's grace towards His people in historic acts of redemption. They were to look at what God had accomplished through time, and they were to be encouraged that the graciousness that overrode the way God engaged with His people would be the same graciousness that they would receive in all their failure. And so if you remember this, I'm going to repeat it here. The joy of the Lord was to be their strength or their protection. The protection was against the judgments that the law proclaims. When God's earlier acts of salvation were called on occasions such as this, it was appreciated that grace was the overriding characteristic of God's nature. The joy of the Lord was the joy each Israelite felt as he identified himself afresh as a part of the community of God's people and embraced in his own generation the salvation once bestowed upon his ancestors. Their story becomes the story of Israel there in Jerusalem after exile. It becomes their own personal story. And they see themselves as part of it. We'll see this work itself out today in today's sermon when God's story becomes their story. And so we come to the second part of Nehemiah 8, leading into Nehemiah 9. It's Nehemiah 8.13. The Scriptures read, Then on the second day, I'll give you a moment to turn if you'd like. Nehemiah 8.13. Then on the second day, the heads of fathers' households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe, that they might gain insight into the words of the law. Do you notice where revival is leading? It's moving from Nehemiah and Ezra, and it's, me, it's, it's, it's being led now by the leaders, by the priests, and by the heads of households, by the fathers who are over these families. It's moved from two people, and it's moved into the very homes of the people. That's the move of revival. And so they're taking responsibility. Let's look real quick, before we continue, at what God called fathers to. Uh, these scriptures that I'm about to read in Deuteronomy 6, they're central to the confession of Jews. And, and in reading this law, this would have been something central to them. They would have been reciting this together. They would have been holding this up before the people as, as a definition of what faithfulness would be. So in Deuteronomy 6, we read this. O Israel... You should listen and be careful to do these commandments, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. So they would have heard these scriptures. They would have been being stirred within, and seeing that it's their responsibility, personally, not the responsibility of others, to be the one who teaches and leads their own households to faithfulness. They knew that all, in scrap, all of Scripture was inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be equipped, ready for every good work. They knew this too. And so they were to teach these commands. 
We all know this verse too. But it's interesting because what Scripture is good for is actually relative to what every one of us has been called to. You see, see if this is familiar to you. Go make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. It's the Great Commission. We've all been given that. And we've been called to teach, to reprove, to correct, to train. We're a kingdom of priests, a ministerium of God. God has called us to the same. And so as Israel came to see that that was their calling, the calling of of not just some priests and Levites and leaders, but the calling of the heads of those households to carry out this commission that God has given them. And we all have this commission in specific context. I'll give you some context. Teachers and leaders to the church. Fathers to their children. Mothers to their daughters. Husbands to their wives. Older women to younger women. Older men to younger men. Members of the church to one another. And these members of the church to all those who do not know Christ. We've been commissioned to the same. To go and teach. To go and make disciples. We've all been called to teach and lead someone. Well, a people who are in the midst of revival, they find themselves very eager to know those commands of God. They're eager to know them because they're eager to fulfill what God had commissioned them to be and to do. And so in Nehemiah 8.14 we read, They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Now, Booths is is something we might not be familiar with. We actually don't celebrate that festival. Um, And so I want to read from Leviticus 23, more of the law that they were reading. And it's it's clear in the scripture this is the law they were reading. I want to read from it, but I want you to listen what its purpose was. Because that's a really important thing, is what the purpose of the Feast of Booths was. You ready? So on exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered in the crops of the land, You shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. Now on the first day you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall thus celebrate it as a a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths. So that, here's your purpose statement, ready? Your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am their Lord your God. Do you see it? These feasts were set up as object lessons. Object lessons that allowed the heads of household to be faithful to proclaim what God has done from generation to generation. These were opportunities for them to teach and be faithful. And notice specifically, particularly in our context here, what Booth's purpose was for. Remember, uh, the joy of the Lord was their strength. You know, this joy they felt as they identified themselves anew as part of the people of God. And they look forward to the salvation that their ancestors had once had. And so, with these booths, they're remembering Egypt. Do you remember what happened in Egypt? God's people are enslaved. 
And God rose up a deliverer, and he delivered them through mighty, miraculous works. Parting the Red Sea and delivering them through that. And then taking them in the wilderness where he guided them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He guided them and took them. And he provided them manna from heaven every morning so that they would be filled. And he, he poured forth water from a rock so that they could drink. And there they learned that he's their God and they're his people. And that he would make amazing provisions. Because he is great and mighty and awesome. And if you remember, he laid to waste the strongest, most powerful nation in the world. All by his hand. And all the nations knew and heard of this great God. And they trembled. Well, let's think about where Israel is right now. They're under the greatest power in the world. Babylon. And God is now doing a similar work. Through great miraculous works, he is leading them out of that. And He's guiding them. And He's making provision for them. He's teaching them. And so here they are coming to celebrate this celebration of booths. And they're coming to know again how God had once done it. And they're starting to see that He's doing the very same thing right now. And hopefully they will come to see this. It's going to be dependent on whether or not these leaders are going to do what they need to do and the people, whether they're going to obey. So let's see in Nehemiah 8.15. So they, the leaders, proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying, Go out to the hills, bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So here you have the, the appropriate response, right? These leaders and teachers, these heads of household, they're going out and making proclamation, all right? They're, they're inciting Israel to be obedient and to observe this as God has commanded, as it is written. Let's see what the people do in Nehemiah eight sixteen and 17. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim the entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. And there was great rejoicing. That's a little over 800 years, just to give you an idea. So did you hear it? The people said go. I mean, the leader said go, and the people went. And the end was rejoicing. I want to imagine a scene with you again. We did this exercise last week. We're going to do it differently this week. And remember, we're trying to move from this merely being God's story with his people there in the time of Nehemiah to your story. So I want you to listen to this story. And this story is going to be in line with the things that were going on and what they would have experienced. But I think you'll find there's a lot of commonality there to us and the things that we experience. So imagine this scene when God's people for the first time in over 800 years since Joshua the son of Nun, were no longer a disappointment, but were becoming the people of God, a peculiar people, holy and set apart to God. So it's the end of the harvest. You and all your family had just finished some of the hardest months of the year. You've been reaping a harvest for two weeks. You're exhausted. But God's doing great and exciting things. If you remember just two weeks earlier, you were there at the water gate with 42,000 people of Israel worshiping God for seven hours. 
And it was awesome. And you wept because of your sin. And you rejoiced because of the grace of God. And it was refreshment to your soul. And your enemies had shrunk away. But now, some time has passed. You're weak. You're a little bit weary. You just work two weeks of hard labor in the harvest. Sun up to sun down every single day. You're tired. You wondered though, what kind of harvest celebration would y'all celebrate this year? You know, before, you'd always celebrated just like all the other nations did. And you'd even heard that back even before the exile, even before the exile to Assyria, that that's what all your fathers had done. They had just done the same things the nations did. No different whatsoever. And so you wondered, because now you knew you were becoming God's people, and you wondered, how would this be different this time? You are becoming distinct as the people of God, you and your household. But in your flesh, you think, I hope it doesn't require much of, you, of me. I'm tired. I'm weary. Then here comes a knock. It's your father, the leader of your family line, the head of your household. He comes and instructs you as to what the Festival of Booths is. And that's exciting. You come to see it's a remembrance of God and uh, His redeeming love for His people. And you're excited about that. This is your chance to obey God's command. This is what it's going to mean for you to be obedient, to be God's people. But ouch, you're tired and weary. And that does sound like a lot of work. Maybe you should just stay at home and be a family and just rest. Everyone's tired. I doubt anybody will notice. There will probably be 42,000 people there. You think, but you know what? That's what we've always done. And it's different now. We're becoming the people of God. We have to align ourselves with the purposes and promises of God. We must be obedient. So you proclaim, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You muster all the passion and zeal that you can and go to your family and you teach them about the festival of booths. You teach them about God's great deliverance from Egypt. The kids whine a bit. They just got done with harvest too. We want to stay home and play, Dad. Do we really have to? But you and your faithful wife team up to inspire them to joyful obedience. Then out to the hills you go as a family out to collect olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees. You're going along, and that last one, the myrtle branches, it's a tough one, you know. Those are hard to find these days. Is it really that important? But you push on. You find all the branches you're supposed to. And you and your family, surprisingly enough, actually come to enjoy this time. It's a time when God seems to be pushing you together. And you rally together because your middle son, Chohen, wants to build the best booth in Jerusalem. And so your family rallies together for Chohen because they're going to build the best booth. And your spirits are renewed. And what you thought it was going to be a great burden you come to find was really refreshing. It was refreshing as a family. 
And so you get back and you pack up your mules and you head into Jerusalem. And your spirits are a little renewed. And as you approach Jerusalem, it was a long trip. The, the kids fought along the way and it was a little bit tense, but there you see it. There's Jerusalem and it's alive. 42,000 people scurrying along and then you smell it. The smell of myrtle. What a sweet aroma. And you realize it's the aroma of God's people. And you think, I'm glad we spent the extra time. I'm glad we got what we needed. And so you come into the city, each family building its own booth. It's quite a spectacle. There's, on each roof, there's a booth. And in two big squares of the public squares, there are booths. And you think, oh great, I wonder what spot we're going to get. And your wife kindly says, I told you we should have left a little earlier so we could get a good spot. But you know what? You resolve to act in patience and kindness because that's how God's dealt with you. And then there it is, the lights of heaven shine down and you hear a choir of angelic hosts. It's the Harem family booth site. What a provision of God. Your wife explains, It's a butte, Ja'al. Upwind from the restrooms, but downwind from the food court, but close enough to both. You tell your oldest son, Levi, to get out the rope he was supposed to pack. Uh, Father, yes, son, I forgot the rope. That's okay, son, the Lord will provide. And you think... You know, I only told him three times. Oh well, like fathers, like sons. After procuring rope from the mehitas next door, you begin assembly, assembling your booth with your boys. Can we go play, Dad? After we finish the booth, sons. The boys are now interested. They ask, why is everyone doing this, Dad? This is crazy. Well, sons, there was a time when God's people were in slavery under the greatest, most powerful nation in all the world, Egypt. But I thought Babylon was the greatest, most powerful nation in the world, Dad, says your youngest Noah. Yes, it is now, but Egypt once was. Well, what happened to Egypt? Cohen chimes in. Please give me a moment without questions, boys. I'll tell you the story. So you and your family work on the booth together, and you start to tell them this story how God did many great miracles and destroyed Israel's oppressors, how God's people lived in the desert and were led by God in a cloud by day and a fire by night, how God provided manna from heaven every morning and water from a rock, how God gave them good commands and just statutes so that He could lead them to what was good, how God dwelled among them in the tabernacle where that fire and that, that cloud descended, and how God's people followed Him in the wilderness and were never in need. How God was taking them to the land He had promised, if only they would follow Him. Hohen interrupted again, But why are we under Babylon, Dad? Well, son, because our fathers and we have sinned. We've been disobedient to God from Joshua the son of Nun until now. Did you know that we've not obeyed God in this ordinance in over 800 years? Levi says, 
So if we will now follow God, will He not do the same for us and deliver us from Babylon? A wise one that Levi is. Yes, son, that is the point. If we are careful to do according that all is written, we shall become that which God has promised and purposed for us to be. We no longer have to be a disappointment. That's why we're doing this, because God has set it up as a perpetual ordinance for us to observe for all generations. Wow, exclaims Hohen, if our God is for us, then who could stand against us? Noah affirms, no one, not even Egypt or Babylon. Levi also affirms, I'm glad we came, Dad. And you rejoice. as you realize that you're being what God intended you to be. You, you rejoice because the sense of identity is being formed in your heart and the hearts of your family as you become obedient to God. Do you see it? The joy of the Lord was their strength. It was the joy they felt as they identified themselves anew with the grace of God and His redemptive plan. When the story of God became their personal story, that's when they received the joy of the Lord. I suppose they probably would have been eager to hear more stories about God. And they did, we see here in Nehemiah 8.18. Ezra read from the book of the law of God daily, from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days, and on the eighth day... There was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. They were obedient. Well, let's see what happens. So here they are. They just got out of the Feast of Booze where they worshiped God perpetually with all of His people, read from the Scriptures daily in festive joy. And two days later, they come together again here in chapter 9, if you turn to chapter 9. And it says this, Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt upon upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. This concept of sackcloth and dirt has to do with mourning and confession. And that's what they're doing right now. They're mourning again. And they're confessing their sin after having heard God's law and seeing their own failure. And they're separating themselves from all foreigners. These are their wives and even their children will find from Ezra 10 that they're separating themselves from. What they're coming to find is it cost them something to be the people of God. They don't get to keep living their lives the way they always had. And it's hard. It's hard because they have to submit their will to the will of another, to the will of God. And that's not an easy thing to do. They have to lose their life that they might obtain the very life of God. And you know, one is much to be preferred over the other. But it means you have to give up what at one time seemed to be the better. And that causes mourning. It also causes mourning that you once lived that other as if it was the better, to the neglect of that which was truly great, to live a life in God. 
see God's people quite contrary to the law, have taken on foreign wives. And he told them not to. He said, because if you do, what will happen is this. They'll bring their gods and you'll permit it. And then you'll come to worship them. And that's exactly what they did. They brought in foreign wives for themselves. And then foreign wives brought in their own gods from their people. And the husbands permitted it. And all the family came to start worshiping other gods. They became just like the nations. They were no longer a distinct people of God. A disappointment. You see, we live in an increasingly wicked and idolatrous world. We do right here. And faithfulness to God for us is increasingly going to cost more. Are you ready for that? Increasingly, we're going to have to become more and more separate from this world because that's what faithfulness to God is going to look like. It's not going to be fun. It's not going to make you happy. And it will likely cost you much. Well, this separation from foreigners, as I mentioned from Ezra 10, is not only the wives, it's also the children of the wives. That's a hard thing for us to even conceive of. Particularly in this culture. Because you know our children are some of our biggest idols in this culture. us serving and sacrificing for them above all others, even to the exclusion of all others. I only take care of me and mine because that's all God called me to. Well, Jesus, and I'm just, it's hard to imagine putting things above children, putting God above my children, putting His calling on my life above my children, But Jesus could. You know, he was speaking about living for the kingdom of God in this world. This is what he said. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. That's right. We're followers of Jesus. Remember that guy everyone forsook because he was heading for the cross? You know, the guy that had no place to lay his head. The guy who gave his life completely for the sake of others. The guy who hung around and even went to dangerous and less desirable places because he was there to seek and save the lost, not to seek his own life the man of sorrows, the suffering servant, that's who we say we follow. And it's hard to read these verses because I've got to ask myself, do I? Does that describe my life? Is that the one I'm following? Listen carefully to the law in Deuteronomy. I know I've read a lot of law, but it's important. It will reveal the heart's of these men in Israel. And this is what the hearts of people in revival look like. And I want you to measure your own heart. Deuteronomy 24 says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, 
then he may divorce her. You see, God came to matter so much to these people that their foreign wives and their children no longer had any favor in their eyes because they became indecent to them. That's tough. But God was so big to them, they were unfavorable. And they despised those wives they had took who led them into idolatry. And they despised the fact that they had sinned against God. And so they obeyed and separated themselves. And they sent away their wives and the children of their wives. Could you imagine what it might look like if God was more important than your personal happiness or the happiness of your children? Can you imagine what that calling in your life might look like? Here's the interesting thing, and we come to find it out in the text. You might find it's better than what you thought it would be. It reminds me of a baseball story. Reggie Jackson, Hall of Famer. I've been coaching baseball, so baseball's on the mind a little bit here. He was one of the all-time greats, and he knew the game so well. He knew every pitcher. He knew every catcher, and he knew when he could steal second base. But he didn't like it when he had to play for manager Earl Weaver because Earl Weaver had a rule. No one steals second base unless I say no one. Well, one day he got a hit and got on first base. He knew that pitcher. He knew that catcher, and he knew he could steal And that's just what he did. The pitch was made. He took off for a second. He was safe by a mile. He jumped up, brushed off, and gave a big grin and a nod over to Earl Weaver. After the game, Earl Weaver called Reggie into his office and said, Reggie, when you stole second base, let me tell you what happened. My next batter up was my other power hitter, Lee May. And since you stole second, that left first open. So they walked, my biggest power hitter. Took the bat right out of his hand. Furthermore, Reggie, the next person in the lineup was a man who had a lifetime batting average of negative 1,000 against that pitcher. He couldn't have hit that pitcher if he would have delivered the ball underhand. So I had to put in my strongest pinch hitter. That left me at the end of the game without a strong pitch hitter when I needed him. And we lost the game. Then Earl Weaver said to him, Reggie, you were thinking about one half inning and your relationship to the pitcher and the catcher when you stole second. But listen here. I was thinking about the whole game. So don't you ever steal second without my sign again. Here's the point. We're in a half inning of of eternity And all we can see is this half inning right now. You get it? We can't see clearly what's going to happen next. We can't see how the circum... We can't see and know and understand all the circumstances we're in. But God can. And He does. We must trust God. Because He not only knows what's happening in this half inning... He has his eye on the whole game, and he's going to win. So the Israelites who entered into covenant renewal trusted God with their whole lives, even amidst great sacrifice. They believed that God sees the picture bigger than they do, 
and they entrusted themselves to him. And they repented and separated themselves from their foreign wives and the children of those wives. God became bigger to them. I realize you're looking at chapter 9 and you're looking at the clock and you're thinking, Jason, are you kidding? Don't be dismayed. We're right where we needed to be right now. So I'm going to do something a little bit different today. I'm going to read chapter 9. Chapter 9 is a poem. And this poem, there's a lot of repetition. And what you're supposed to do when you read this is see the big picture. How God has been for His people and how His people have been for Him. This is the story of God and His redemptive covenant love. It's the story of God's people. It's the story, and you'll come to find, and, and they come to find, it's the story of exiled Israel. And I think you'll come to find it's your story, and it's our story. This is the story of God and His people. And we're going to do something, and, I, and I, I'm not going to give commentary, but I, I want to give you a theme, a theme that you can remember. And I'm going to liken it to the love of a parent and a child that's a, a covenant relationship. The parent, very briefly, seeks to provide, teach, and guide. If you think about all a parent does, it can be boiled down to that. Provide all the provision they need for life. They teach them, and they guide them. They stay with them and take them along the way. And that's how a parent loves a child. The way a child is to, to love a parent, you ready? Depends on that provision. Obeys those teachings and follows where that parent guides. Do you see it? And God says, I'm your father. And you're my children. So notice, God here will be provider, he'll be teacher, and he'll be guide. And if his people, if they will be as his children, and depend on his provision, and obey his teaching, and follow him, he will deliver what he's promised. And when they don't, well, he continues to be faithful. He never changes. And it's his patience and kindness that continually leads his people again to repentance. So we're going to do like Israel did. And they stood for six hours, by the way. I'm going to ask you to stand for six minutes. Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and is all, all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them. And the heavenly host bows down before you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, and the Amorite, of the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite, to give it to his descendants, and you have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. Then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly toward them. And made a name for yourself as it is this day. You divided the sea before them. So they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground. And their pursuers you hurled into the depths. Like a stone into raging waters. And with a pillar of cloud you led them by day. And with a pillar of fire by night. To light for them the way in which they were to go. 
Then you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. And you gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. So you made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments, statutes, and law through your servant Moses. You provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for them for their thirst. And you told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, This is your God who brought you up from Egypt and committed great blasphemies, you and your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. Indeed, forty years you provided for them in the wilderness, and they were not in want. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet swell. You also gave them kingdoms and peoples, and allotted them to them as a boundary. They took possession of the land of Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, the king of Bashan. You made their sons numerous as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So their sons entered and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and you gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land to do with them as they desired. They captured fortified cities and a fertile land. They took possession of houses full of every good thing, hewn cisterns, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate, were filled, and grew fat, and reveled in your great goodness. But they became disobedient and rebelled against you, and cast your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets who you had admonished them, so they might return to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them. But when they cried to you in the time of their distress, you heard from heaven. And according to your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. But as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. Therefore you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. When they cried again to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you rescued them according to your compassion and admonished them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments, but sinned against your ordinance, by which if a man observes them, he shall live. And they turned a stubborn stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not listen. However, you bore with them for many years, and admonishing them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands, Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardship seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us, your exiled people, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and on all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day, However, you are just in all that has come upon us. 
For you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your admonitions with which you have admonished them. But they in their own kingdom, with your great goodness which you gave them, with the broad and rich land which you set before them, did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. Behold, we are slaves today. And as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, behold, we are slaves in it. Its abundant produce is for the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please, so we are in great distress. Now because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. Do you see it? You may be seated. Six minutes is tough. Imagine six hours. Do you see it? God's provision. God's teaching. God's guidance. And do you see God's people depending on themselves? Throwing God's law behind them and paying no attention to those commands living as they desire. Not following God as a guide, but doing what's right in their own eyes. There's a great irony in all this, and that's this. Service to God is not nearly as costly as it is beneficial because He's seeking for your good to the praise of His glory. It is ironic, isn't it? We spurn it and look, like, look at God and His laws and His ways as if they're prohibitive. Like He's trying to keep good things from us. But in fact, they're not prohibitive. They're provisional. The very provision of God. One last story I'll leave you with and it'll be a quick one. There was a man who had a son and a daughter. And he was very depressed because his daughter had become a hardcore goth and was dating the wrong boys and, and, and was in outright rebellion. And he came to a friend and was heartbroken and said, I don't know what to do. And this friend was pretty wise. And he said, tell me about your life. He goes, well, my life's like everybody else's. I get up, I go to work, I work, I come home, eat dinner, watch some TV so I can provide this home and these cars for my family. That's what my life looks like. The counselor said, Sounds like you got a pretty boring life. And he was a little insulted by that. He's doing it for his family. He said, well, here's the thing. My guess is your daughter's looked at your life and she's found a life that's more interesting. She's found a life that seems more rewarding than the one you're living. He went back and he was pretty mad at his friend. And he prayed and he read the scriptures and he realized he wasn't living for the mission of God. He was living for him and his and that's it. And he had come to hear about a need for orphanages in a particular village in Mexico. So he had been praying and God had been stirring him and he took all their savings, everything they had, took a big risk, took a big gamble. And he got their family together for the first family meeting ever. And he said, you know what? We're going to serve the Lord. 
we're going to make some changes. I've taken our savings. I've taken everything that we've saved. And we're going to go build an orphanage in Mexico. And we're going to seek to love and deliver these kids who have great need. And their family thought he was a little bit crazy. And over the next few months, they started to see that he wasn't kidding. He was really going to do it. And before long, they joined in. It, wasn't, it was no longer just his mission. It became their mission. And you want to know what happened with the daughter? She left that boy in a flash. Because that story of God was a far greater story than she could ever imagine. And she rejoined herself to her father and her family and to her God. And they sought to accomplish the mission of God together as a family. You see, he was living, trying to live for his kids and his wife, thinking the way that he had set out was the best way. But he was only thinking about one half inning. And what came to happen was he entrusted himself to God and God's rule. And he came to say, see that it turned out better. The very thing he desired, he came to have, but not his way. He came to have when he entrusted to the one who sees and rules over the whole game. Where are you? This is your story. Are you depending on God and His provision? Are you trying to make a way for yourself? Are you submitting to God's teachings and learning those so that you can be faithful? Or are you just going in your own way? Are you seeking to follow God even when it looks like where He's leading is crazy and surely you might lose it all? Or are you doing what's right in your own eyes and seeking the life you always dreamed for yourself? See, a people in revival come to throw their lives away for the great promise of following the God who will bring all things about as He is determined. Well, that's all today. Thanks for your time and attentiveness. And go and be faithful. Repent and follow the Lord to the praise of His glory. You're dismissed.